Good evening. It's been a while since I've been up here on Sunday nights, so we'll see what happens. But since it's all by grace, we should always expect a blessing, right? Every morning, wake up, expect a blessing. We, uh, last time I was up here, we were going through 1 John, so I figured we'd pick up there. We're in 1 John chapter 2, verse 26. In verse 26, John says, These things I have written to you concerning those who tried to deceive you, who tried to deceive you. Our enemy, Satan, the father of lies, as Jesus called him, always trying to deceive us, try to deceive us. As Christians, we should not be easily deceived. Our enemy is a defeated foe. In Colossians it says, and you being dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he has made alive together with him, having forgiven you all trespasses, having wiped out the handwriting of requirements that was against us, which was contrary to us. And he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross, having disarmed principalities and powers. He made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them in it. Our enemy, the deceiver, has been disarmed. The only weapon he has left is deception. In Hebrews it says, Inasmuch as the children are partaken of flesh and blood, he himself likewise shared in the same, that through death he might destroy him who had the power of death, that is, the devil, and release those who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. In 1 Corinthians 15, it says, So when this corruptible has put on incorruption and this mortal has put on immortality, then shall be brought to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your sting? O Hades, where is your victory? The sting of death is sin, and the strength of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Our enemy has been disarmed and defeated. He can no longer, death is gone. Death is no longer a concern for us. Only life, eternal life. Our enemy has been disarmed and defeated, but he's planted a few landmines along the way that can get, it, get us and catch us up. We will not die because Christ lives. Our enemy can't defeat us. And the only weapon he has left is deception. That's the only weapon he's ever had uh, right from the garden. Did God really say? And all through the Bible, you can see how he has attempted to deceive God's people. John, in this letter, he gives us reasons why he wrote this letter. The first one is, these things we write to you that your joy may be full. And I think that's the main theme of the whole letter, that John wants our joy to be full. He says later, I write this that you may know that you have eternal life that you can have that confidence, that you don't have to work for it, you don't have to worry about it, you can be secure in the knowledge that we have eternal life because of what Christ did, because of somewhat what someone else did outside of ourselves. It doesn't depend on what we've done or what we haven't done. It all depends on what Christ has done, what he has accomplished. So he writes this to make that your joy may be full, and that's I think, is the main reason because the Bible says that the joy of the Lord is your strength. If we don't have that joy of our salvation, we will not have any strength. We won't be able to pray. We won't be able to serve. Uh, 
we won't have any strength. And there's never been a time when strength is more needful than today. In Ephesians it says, Therefore take up the whole armor of God, that you may be able to withstand the evil day, and having done all to stand. And we are living in the evil day today. Uh, we can see it becoming more and more. And we take up the whole armor that we can withstand in the evil day, and having done all to stand. If we don't have the joy of our salvation, we're not going to be able to withstand. And we're not have, going to be able to do all and to, find, and to be found standing. And as Paul said, at the end of his life, I have finished, my, finished the race, I have kept the faith. The joy of the Lord. John knew how needful it was. King David knew how needful the joy of the Lord was. You can see it in the Psalms. When you think of his sin with Bathsheba, committing adultery, and then having her husband murdered to cover up his tracks, I can't imagine the condemnation that the enemy laid on him considering who he was, considering the position that God had him in, and considering God's purpose for his life, the enemy just must have laid it on him thick. You, you, know, you kind of wonder, how was David able to continue after sinning like that and getting that condemnation, feeling condemned, and rightfully so, feeling condemned, how was he able to continue with the Lord, especially when he started experiencing the consequences of his sin? Children in his family died because of his sin. He lost the throne for a while. There was rebellion in the land. You know, how dare he come before God when he has denied by his actions? How, how dare he come before God and plead, cast me not away from your presence? Do you ever feel condemned? You sin and you feel condemned and you wonder, man, how can I come before God and pray, Lord, take me back? Because you're just so aware of your unworthiness. And the enemy just lays that deceitful condemnation on us. How was he able to say, I want to abide in you when his sin spoke otherwise? All the evidence was against him. And yet he was able to have the boldness to come before the throne of grace and pray to be, to be uh, brought back. He could do it because he was not deceived. And because he was not deceived, he could ask, restore to me the joy of your salvation, and ask it with confidence, knowing his God. He wanted to live. He knew, if I don't have that joy, if I don't have the joy of your salvation, I'm not going to be able to get out of bed tomorrow morning. I'm not going to be able to pray. I'm not going to be able to serve you. And your purpose is not going to be accomplished in my life if I don't have that joy to worship you. If I don't have that joy, the only thing I'll be able to do is die because I won't have any hope. He prays, restore to me the joy of your salvation. I don't deserve it, and all the powers of darkness are all trying to convince me that even my prayer for restoration is sin. But David wasn't deceived. He was able to approach the throne of grace, and he was able to live and not die. He knew that God will never turn a deaf ear to a cry for mercy, ever. The hope of eternal life, which God, who cannot lie, promised before time began. And in our, verse, our current verse, John is writing to the church. The reason he's writing is concerning those who try to deceive you. Verse 27, it says, But the anointing which you have received from him abides in you, and you do not need that anyone teach you. 
But as the same anointing teaches you concerning all things, and is true, and is not a lie, and just as it is taught you, you will abide in him. Satan's only weapon is deception, and the church has been deceived over the years by many things, false doctrine, misrepresenting Christ, cheap grace, another gospel other than what the apostles preached. Another is a deception that seems to, I think we can all see it now, and I think the COVID pandemic helped this one, helped fuel this deception, and that is that people don't feel that they have to be in fellowship, that they don't have to go to church anymore. And they'll even quote that verse, no one is able, no, you do not need anyone to teach you. But in Hebrews it says, therefore we, we must give the more earnest heed to the things we have heard, lest we drift away. It's so easy to drift away. You ever go out on a lake and lay down on a raft and fall asleep, and you wake up like four miles from where you were? It's easy to drift away. All the flesh needs to drift is an excuse. And then we become willing to stay in the place that we've drifted to. Because it takes more strength than we have to get back to where we were. But with God, all things are possible. God always says return. We should never feel, you know, the enemy lies to us and say you can't come back. You know, you look at Israel and you read how God spoke to them, always telling them to come back, to come back. No matter, no matter what, come back. In Hebrews it says, Let us consider one another in order to stir up love and good works, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together, as is the manner of some, but exhorting one another, and so much more as you see the day approaching. And we definitely see the day approaching. Like the Bible says, the night is far spent. We are prone to drift. But there are three lifelines that we're to tie ourselves to, that when the tide of deception comes in, we will only be able to drift so far, and the Lord will bring us back, pull us back. And that's the word, prayer, and fellowship. If we're tied to those three things, we can only drift so far. Those three are our anchor. If we become unattached to any of them, we will drift. So much more as you see the day approaching. And the Bible says that we are to do good, and we have to be around people in order to do good. We have to be in fellowship and be around our brothers and sisters so we have those opportunities to do good, to encourage each other, how we need to be encouraged in these days. Because being a Christian can be kind of lonely. Never before has it been more needful for us to assemble ourselves together. We need each other. We need to be with other believers, encourage each other. If we're not in fellowship, we've been deceived and are missing out on a gift from God. In Ephesians, it says, He gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, some pastors and teachers, for the equipping of the saints, for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ. Pastor teachers are people the Lord has raised up, through whom the Lord equips the saints, for, equips us for ministry, to do the work, and for edification of the body. Time alone with the Lord is like the meal, the food that keeps us alive, when we're just us and the Lord, that time in his word alone. Bible studies and being in fellowship is like the dessert. If we're living on desserts alone, our spiritual health will deteriorate. If we have the meal and don't get the dessert, 
then we're missing out on a blessing that God intended for us to have and enjoy. God doesn't raise up pastors and teachers for no reason. And we need to pray for our pastors. Pray that they are able to teach, to receive a message from the Lord, and are enabled to run with it and deliver it, not adding to the word or taking away, but showing and explaining the doctrine of faith, and that in view of the whole word of God, and that our pastors are able to preach the gospel from the pulpit. For people who come into the church who don't know the Lord, that they will be able to believe, hear the good news, and accept Christ. And also for the body, for the, for the joy of the Lord is our strength, that they be able to preach the gospel. And also, excuse me, for those that stand in the pulpit, that they are able to prophesy by the Spirit. We should be praying for our pastors, all those who stand up here, that they will be able to prophesy. The Bible says, he who prophesies speaks edification and exhortation and comfort to men. And we're exhorted to pray for that gift. We need to hear the Lord speak specific words of life to us as a church and each one of us as individuals. So John is writing on those who try to deceive you, but for those in whom the Holy Spirit dwells, we should not be easily deceived. It's amazing. The Spirit dwells in us. There's a million preachers on YouTube. You go on there and... It, you watch, start watching somebody start to preach, and you know within minutes whether it's right or wrong. You know, the spirit within us. We recognize falsehood because the spirit of truth abides in us, and we know the word of God. How important it is to make sure that the spirit of truth is abiding in us, that the spirit of God is living in us. Paul said in Romans, but you are not in the flesh, but in the spirit, if indeed the spirit of God dwells in you. Now, if anyone does not have the spirit of Christ, he is not his. If the spirit of Christ is not dwelling in someone, they're not a Christian. So it's important to know, is the spirit of God dwelling within me? How do we know? Is it the manifestation of a spiritual gift? Is it speaking in tongues? Somebody who speaks in tongues? Is that evidence that the spirit is dwelling in them? Not necessarily. Is it manifestation of the fruit of the Spirit? I would say yes. A person who has become a new creation, a new creation made by God, a person who loves in truth, a person who has joy and the peace that passes all understanding. But that fruit of the Spirit is not always evident in these tents of flesh, especially under self-examination. Romans, it says, for you did not receive the spirit of bondage again to fear, but you received the spirit of adoption by whom we cry out, Abba, Father. Uh, Romans 8.15. Yes. In verse 16, it says, The spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. Galatians, it says, Galatians 4.6, it says, Because you are sons, God has sent forth the spirit of his son into your hearts, crying out, Abba, Father. And I think that, that ultimately, that that is the evidence. That's how we know that the spirit of God dwells in us. That no matter what our circumstances are, whether they're good or whether they're tragic, no matter what our successes or our failures, we're always brought back to that place where we cry out, Abba, Father. That's evidence that the spirit of God dwells in us. 
God always brings us back, crying out, Abba, Father. And you know that that word Abba means Daddy, which sounds kind of weird even to say. But crying out, Daddy, that kind of relationship. Verse 28 says, And now, little children, abide in him, that when he appears, we may have confidence and not be ashamed before him at his coming. In Colossians 1.19, it says, For it pleased the Father that in him all the fullness should dwell, and by him to reconcile all things to himself, by him, whether things on earth or things in heaven, having made peace through the blood of his cross. And you who once were alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked works, yet now he has reconciled in the body of his flesh through death to present you holy and blameless and above reproach in his sight. If indeed you continue in the faith, there's an if there, if you continue in the faith, grounded and steadfast, and are not moved away from the hope of the gospel which you heard, which was preached to every creature under heaven, of which I, Paul, became a minister. So Paul's saying there, stay with him, keep the faith, live in him, and be found in him. In Philippians 3.8, Paul says, yes, in, yes, indeed, I also count all things lost for the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them as rubbish that I may gain Christ, and be found in him not having my own righteousness, which is from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which is from God by faith, to be found in him. That's what we pray for, Lord. I just pray that I am found in you, that when the time comes, I am, my trust and my hope and my confidence is in you. To be found in him, but also to be found with him. There's a lot of people who are going to be found in him, but they may not be found with him. Colossians 3.1 says, if then you were raised with Christ, seek those things which are above where Christ is, sitting at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above, not on things on the earth. For you died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is our life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. We're going to be found in Christ because we believe what Jesus accomplished on the cross, that he who knew no sin became sin question is, are we going to be found with him? If you were a disciple back when Jesus was on earth, you would be walking with him. You would be with him on the road. Uh, you would be with Jesus. You would walk with him every day. You wouldn't get ahead of him. You wouldn't lag behind. You would stay close. You wouldn't lay down and fall asleep. You would stay close to him, not losing sight of him. Close so you could hear his words and talk to him. And we should pray for that, that we are found in him and we are found with him. As it says of, in, 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 the, in the book of Genesis, of those who have gone before us, it says, Enoch walked with God 300 years and had sons and daughters. And Enoch walked with God and was not, for God took him. And in Genesis 6-9 it says, this is the genealogy of Noah, Noah was a just man, perfect in his generations. Noah walked with God. It was just that relationship, just every day, just walking with God, walking through the day with God. Be found in him and with him. So that we're not ashamed, as the verse said, when it is coming. 
because Jesus is coming back. And you know, we hear that over and over again. Jesus is coming back. We say it to the kids in Sunday school. Jesus is coming back. But the fact that's becoming more and more real every day, that Jesus is going to return. And we're going to be standing before him. In Romans 14.10, Paul says, But why do you judge your brother? Or why do you show contempt for your brother? For we shall all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. For it is written, As I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me, and every tongue shall confess to God. So then each of us shall give an account of himself to God. Will we be ashamed, or will we have confidence when we stand before him? Those who will have confidence when they stand before that judgment seat are those who in this life, their confidence was in Christ alone. Not in anything we did, or not in not ashamed because of anything we didn't do, but our confidence is in Christ alone. And, not, and they were not moved away from that hope. In Hebrews 3.5, it says, And Moses indeed was faithful in all his house as a servant for a testimony of those things which would be spoken of afterward. But Christ is a son over his own house, whose house we are, if we hold fast the confidence and the rejoicing of the hope firm to the end. And that's all we're asked to do, is just hold on to that confidence in Christ, what Christ accomplished for us, and that rejoicing of hope firm to the end. If it were of works, I would be ashamed. But thank God it's of grace. Verse 29, For you know that he is righteous. You know that everyone who practices righteousness is born of him. If you practice something long enough and consistently enough, eventually you're going to get good at it. Those who practice righteousness, whose lot... We're in second... Oh, I'm sorry. First John 2.29. Sorry. Yes. Those who practice righteousness, whose lives are marked by their desire to live godly in Christ, discover something. They discover what joy there is in obedience to God. It's life and more abundant, as Jesus said. The joy of living a life in obedience to God. And they also discover what peace there is in unbroken fellowship with God. That peace that passes all understanding. In this world today, to have that peace. And also... Those who practice righteousness, the lure of sin becomes abhorrent to them. Chapter 3, verse 1. Behold what manner of love the Father has bestowed on us, that we should be called children of God. Therefore, the world does not know us, because it did not know him. So how do we get to that place where we truly and consistently desire and practice righteousness. We behold what manner of love the Father has bestowed upon us. Bestowed is given us freely. Ephesians 3.17 says, That Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the width and length and depth and height, to know the love of Christ which passes knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. 
And that's the only way that we are filled with the fullness of God is if we know the love of God, the love of Christ. Second Corinthians 6.18, the Lord says, I will be a father to you and you shall be my sons and daughters, says the Lord Almighty. Children of God, we are called children, now we are called children of God. It says, behold that love, that kind of love, that we should be called children of God. When we had the school here, we had a student who was kind of a pain in the neck. He knew exactly what buttons to push. And there was one teacher, and he knew exactly what buttons to push on her, and he pushed them constantly. And she got very frustrated. And so we had a parent-teacher's conference, and the, the dad came in, and the teacher laid out all the evidence against his son, and all the evidence for the prosecution. And the father listened, and he knew, he understood, he knew his son. And, but I'm sure that uh, this teacher, after telling all the things that his son did, I, think, I believe she wanted to hear the father say that he was going to take him home and hang him by his thumbs until he repented. But the dad just sat there, and all he said during the whole thing was, he just kept saying, he's my son. That's all he said, he's my son. And he knew that there was hope for that kid, because there was somebody who would stand with him and just say, he's my son, end of story. He's my son. Uh, I've told this before, so you have to bear with me, but when I was driving bus, there was a little kindergartner on my bus whose name was Robert. And Robert, I've never seen a kid get in so much trouble in my life. Trouble was his constant companion. He didn't look for trouble, but it found him every single day. And it got very frustrating to have him on the bus, and I can't imagine what he was like in school. But this one day, there was another kid involved, and Robert did something he wasn't supposed to, and it involved another kid. And we got to that kid's stop, and the kid ran out, and his mother was there. And the kid ran up to his mother, and Robert's at the window, and the mother looked up at Robert with the look of death in her eyes. And Robert knew that he was blown in, and he just started crying, and he was weeping all the way home. And he's weeping. He's, you know, why, am I, why do I do this type of thing? Why am I always getting in trouble? He was weeping. And I was thinking, man, when is this kid ever going to learn? And, and so we'll get home, and the father was there. Sure enough, the father's there waiting at the driveway for us. And the dad gets on the bus, and he asked me what happened. And I gave all the evidence for the prosecution. And uh, he brought Robert in crying. And uh, you know, what, I thought, when is this kid ever going to learn? And the only way, he needed a reason. People need a reason to practice righteousness. And Robert's reason, the only reason is that after all the consequences and all the tears, that someone would just put him in his lap and hold him and just say, this is my, this is my, he's my son. And eventually Robert would realize my actions have consequences, but no matter what, this person is never going to stop loving me. And that would give Rob, Robert a reason to practice righteousness. In Revelations 12.10, it says, Then I heard a loud voice saying in heaven, Now salvation and strength and the kingdom of our God and the power of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brethren, who accused them before our God day and night, has been cast down. The accuser of the brethren coming before the throne and accusing us constantly. And not only accusing us, but bringing evidence uh, against us. And our father just says, He's my son. 
or she's my daughter, end of story. Behold what love the Father has bestowed upon us. Verse 2, Beloved, now we are children of God, and it has yet been revealed what we shall be. But we know that when he is revealed, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. The future, what we have to look forward to. When you're young, you don't think too, as much about the future as when you're old. When you get up to a certain age, you start thinking, you know, what does the future hold? When you become mature, I was, I was told this morning that when I speak of senior citizens, like, uh, like me, I should use the word mature and not decrepit. But I'm becoming more and more decrepit. And you start thinking, man, what, is, what does the future hold? And John says here what our future holds, what we have to look forward to. You hear elderly people say, well, there's a lot more years behind me than there are ahead of me. But that's not true. For every person, we got way more ahead of us than behind us. We have an eternity ahead of us, forever, never ending. Everyone has cherished memories, life experiences. You know, you talk to elderly people and they love to tell stories about their lives and their life experiences and to have those memories. And, you know, you love to listen to them. It's great to have that, but how joyful and essential it is to have something more. Someone wrote, we are comforted in remembering, are sobered that the past is gone, and rejoice in hope that there is now only forever. The Bible speaks of the patriarchs, the men and women in the Bible, and it says that they were old and full of days when they left. Old, lived a good long life and full of days. They experienced everything that life had to offer, all the joys, all the sorrows. They were full of days. Psalm 92.13 says, Those who are planted in the house of the Lord shall flourish in the courts of our God. They shall still bear fruit in old age. They shall be fresh and flourishing to declare that the Lord is upright. He is my rock, and there is no unrighteousness in him. Isaiah 46.4 says, Even to your old age I am he, and even to gray hairs I will carry you. I have made, and I will bear. Even I will carry and deliver you. Moses said, in Exodus 33:13, Now therefore I pray, if I have found grace in your sight, show me your way that I may know you. Jesus said in John chapter 17, And this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. Not just know about, but know personal, personally, an intimate knowledge of our creator, of God. That's what God desires. The older you get, you start to lose things. You start to lose your memory, you start to lose your hair, you start to lose, uh, you start to lose things. You, uh, you lose friends, uh, loved ones in your family, pass on. Everything that we can see in this life eventually disappears. But for those who are born again, a glorious things happens. happens. Like it says in Job, I heard of you, now I see you. Job heard of God. He was blessed by God. He had family, wealth, position, renown. He heard of the things of God. We hear of God, so to speak, and we praise and worship him. 
The hearing part is more than just hearing. It's responding to what we hear of God. When we hear of God, we hear of the things of God, we walk in his goodness. We're active. We're living our lives, taking steps of faith, serving him, thanking him for his goodness. Hearing causes us to walk and follow after him. We see God when we can't walk anymore and the Lord carries us. Job saw God. Job saw God when all that could be seen was gone. And to some degree, what happened to Job is going to happen to all of us to see him. When temporary things are stripped away, and they will be, those who are found in Christ will see God. Verse 3, And everyone who has this hope in him purifies himself just as he is pure. If you schedule a vacation, you start preparing for it long before you take off so that you'll be ready and you'll be able to enjoy your vacation to the fullest. We're going to see God. We need to start preparing. How do we purify ourselves? We have this hope, and it says everybody who has this hope purifies themselves. How do we purify ourselves? We make sure that everything is confessed and put under the blood. The Bible says, and if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. John says in 1 John 2:28, And now, little children, abide in him, and when he appears, we may have confidence and not be ashamed before him at his coming. Abide means finding a good place and staying there. You don't have to look any further because the place you found, the place you're staying and living is perfect. Abide in him. John 15, 9, Jesus said, As the Father loved me, I also have loved you. Abide in my love. Verse 4, Whoever commits sin also commits lawlessness, and sin is lawlessness. Sin is missing the mark of a glorious, unbroken fellowship with our Creator. It's a disregard for the law of God. The law of God stands. It is the ultimate defining of what is right and what is wrong. The, procl the proclamation of God to his creation that there is definitive good and evil, right and wrong, clean and unclean. The human nature, the fallen human nature that we're born with, there is no right and wrong. There's only self. That's why Jesus said you have to be born again. And so God has... And as, as fallen humanity, we have, we have been given this truth that is alien to our fallen nature, that there is ultimate truth, there is ultimate right and wrong, good and evil. When we sin, we disregard truth. Verse 5, And you know that he was manifested to take away our sin, and in him there is no sin. Romans 4, 7 says, Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man to whom the Lord shall not impute sin. Boy, that should restore the joy of our salvation. Blessed is the man, the person to whom the Lord will not, when we stand before him, he will not impute sin. Titus 2.13 says, Looking for the blessed hope and glorious appearing of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us that he might redeem us from every lawless deed, and purify for himself his own special people, zealous for good works. 
Hebrews 9.15 says, And for this reason he is the mediator of the new covenant by means of death, for the redemption of the transgressions under the first covenant, that those who are called may receive the promise of the eternal inheritance. This is why Jesus came to take away our sins. Hebrews 10.4 says, For by one offering he has perfected forever those who are being sanctified. We're a work in progress. He is working in us to will and to do his will. But we have been perfected forever because of the one offering. Verse 6, Whoever abides in him does not sin. Whoever sins has neither seen him nor known him. It's a fact. If we are abiding in Christ, if we are abiding in him and staying with him and we're with him and living in him, we won't sin. We do sin. When we do sin, it's because we are not, we're not abiding in him. We've drifted away to some degree. We're not with him on the road. If we're living under that banner of love, the flesh dies and we won't sin. Our desire, our heart, will be to practice righteousness. If we are abiding in him, to practice unrighteousness takes some real effort if we're abiding in, if we're abiding in him. Otherwise, it's easy to sin. So we will end there. Perfected forever. Good verse to take home with us. So, Lord, we praise you, Lord, and we thank you for what you have done for us, Lord. And we pray that we would have that confidence in your work, Lord. And we thank you for it. We praise you, Lord. Cause us to abide in you. Cause us to never drift away, Lord. Keep us in your word. Keep us to be people of prayer and keep us in fellowship. Draw us close to you, Lord. And we pray, Lord, that we are never deceived, but that we would know and live in the truth, Lord. Worship you in spirit and in truth. We pray, Lord, in Jesus' name, amen.